So that's, uh, we're in Hebrews 11. The book of Hebrews, uh, we do not know the author. We do not know the original audience. But we do know that the author of the book of Hebrews, what he, when he, what, whatever audience they had, he assumed they had a deep understanding of the Old Testament, especially the first, what's called the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So it seems that the original audience was most likely a Jew, Jewish audience. And through most of the book, chapters 2 through 10, the author goes out of his way to show that Jesus is superior to everything. Jesus is superior to the angels in the Torah, to Moses and the promised land. He is superior to the priests of Israel and to the sacrifices and the covenant. And one of the big themes throughout the book also is because we know that these his audience was suffering, and despite hardship and persecution, God will not abandon his people. Amen? He will bring forth righteous faith from his church. And then we get to Hebrews 11, what is often known as the Hall of Faith, these great characters of old, God working their, his faith in them. And so we will be reading today Hebrews 11, which talks about Noah. So we'll read a little bit from Genesis as well. So please stand with me. Let's read the scriptures together. By faith, uh, you know what? That is not, that's the old one. I apologize. So let me, uh, let me read this one. I'll read the first part. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Do we have the next one? This might be Pastor Larry's screens. Let, let me check the next one. Yeah, that's, that's from last week. So if you, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, please listen. Then Genesis 6, 5 through 8. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The word of the Lord, you may be seated. Let me pray. And Lucy, hopefully I didn't, okay, it might have been my fault as well. So if it's my bad, we'll, we'll figure it out. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, this is a weighty passage, no doubt, but we thank you for the faith of Noah. And I pray that you would give me just a, a special sensitivity to your heart, your heart of compassion and love for your people and for this world. Lord, I've done the sermon prep, and that will mean nothing unless your spirit anoints this time. I pray that you would. May the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, my rock and redeemer for your glory. Amen. <clears throat> the title of my sermon, <clears throat> there we go. The title of my sermon is Noah, Faith in Chaos. 
faith in chaos. The main idea is that in the midst of chaos and great evil, God brings forth righteous faith. In the midst of chaos and great evil, God brings forth righteous faith. The upcoming flood. If you go into Genesis chapter 6 through chapter 9, you can read all that I will be talking about. We only could read just a segment of Genesis um, but once again, I've talked about this in other sermons. We see the spiral of human history downward into evil. And it begins with Adam and Eve. They rebel against God and they give birth to Cain and to Abel. These two brothers, immediately go, uh, Cain goes at war against his brother Abel and kills him. And then we get the character, Mick. He's the first one who had more than one wife. He seems to be collecting women like trophies, and he's bragging about this man that he killed. And he said, you know, if God is going to avenge Cain seven times for anyone who touches him, I will be avenged 77 times. You can already see the arrogance of the man. And then there's these strange characters called the Nephilim. They seem to be this unholy union of fallen angels and the women of the world. They roam the world as mighty warriors opposing the will of God. So you can see that things are completely out of control on earth. Our scripture in Genesis says, Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The New Living Translation says, The Lord saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So it was bad. And God commands Noah to build an ark because he will judge the whole earth. By this act of faith, the scripture, our scripture, verse 11 says, Noah condemned the world. Wow. That's a... Hard pill to swallow, if we're honest. God will destroy all living things, including the animals, apart from what is on the ark. Judgment. It's an uncomfortable message for us as modern people. We have a hard time believing that everyone in the world, except for Noah, was evil. And every intention of their heart was evil. And that God will wipe them out. Wipe out everyone and everything. How could that be? Is God only a God of judgment? The truth of the matter is judgment should make us feel uncomfortable. What concerns me in my own heart and possibly in yours as we read the scripture and we hear of the judgment of God, even the future judgment of God, and we just don't quite take it seriously enough. If you lean more towards the conservative side of things, you feel it's your responsibility to Guard God's truth at all costs, which can make you often very judgmental. And if you lean on the liberal side of things, you believe that God is love and he accepts everyone. And no one will be judged, which makes, if you believe that, to be a liar. So what is the truth? This is the important truth of the matter. God himself is the only righteous judge. And his heart is one full of mercy. He is the only one who gets to determine how he will judge the world. Which throws us into the great paradox of God himself. 
that he is both just and he is loving. And that paradox is where we will be today. And by the way, everybody believes in judgment. Everybody, another way of saying it is everybody believes in justice. Even the most liberal of all people who believes that God accepts everyone, I guarantee there's an issue of justice where they place themselves on the side of right and somebody else is wrong. Because God has put justice in our hearts. Whether we believe or not, justice is in our hearts. The upcoming judgment of God. We see it in the flood, but we also, if you read the Gospels, we know that there's a judgment yet to happen in the future. Matthew describes it in the exact same terms as in the terms of a flood. Matthew 24, 37 through 39. It says, when the Son of Man returns, it will be like the day of Noah. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time that Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. And that is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. There is an upcoming judgment. There's a parable. It's called the parable of the ten virgins. It's, about, it's really ten bridesmaids waiting for the bridegroom to come. And it's in uh, Matthew 25, the very next passage. See, in the Jewish times, in their culture, the, bride, the groom would go to the bride's house, usually at night, and the bridesmaids and the bride and the families, they would be waiting for them, and the ceremony would happen, and then they would have the wedding celebration. And this, I'm picking up it apart, you have five foolish virgins, bridesmaids, and five wise bridesmaids. And the five foolish bridesmaids did not have enough oil for their lamps waiting for the bridegroom to come. Picking up at verse 7, it says, At midnight the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on the way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the, the day or the hour. That is a disturbing passage. And if you've been a Christian for a long time, have you gotten callous to it? It's disturbing. It is meant to wake us up. It is meant to rattle us. We walk around half asleep much of the time. We think to ourselves, maybe, you know, I'm not like that guy, Lemek, you know, I'm not doing all these wildly evil things. But we don't, if we're, the truth be told, we do not pursue God the way we ought to. And that makes us vulnerable to evil. The flood story and Jesus' warnings about the end times. 
He's saying, do not grow comfortable. That is especially good message for us as Americans. Do not grow comfortable in your pursuit of God. Do not think that just because you are there with your lamps, that you're ready. Make sure you have oil. What does oil represent in the scripture? It represents the presence of God. It represents the Holy Spirit. These young bridesmaids ran out of the presence of God. They were not ready for when he comes. And they were shut out. And it doesn't seem fair to the modern American heart, but they were left out. I can't begin to comprehend all the meanings of it, but I am disturbed by it. Is God trying to wake up my own soul from lethargy? Don't grow comfortable. We must live in the paradox of who God is without being either judgmental or a liar. We have to say both. This is the call of God. This is what it means to live in reverence towards God. With the truth of the upcoming judgment and the surprise that Christ's return will be. It's going to be a surprise. Even Jesus says, I don't know the hour. Or the day. With the truth of the upcoming judgment and the surprise that Christ's return will be, how will you live differently this week in relationship to the people around you who need to hear the message of God's mercy and his love? How will you respond differently? You see, Moses points us to Christ. So judgment is not the end of the story for those who believe. More on this towards the end of my sermon. But we must recognize that God's judgment is a real thing. And we must wake up to it if we are asleep. My second point, reverence and righteousness. Noah is warned about things not seen, this upcoming judgment against all the world. And he acted reverently and he built an ark. And God spoke. He spoke it to Noah and Noah responded to the word of God in his faith. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, says that the flood is an act, actually an act of decreation. It's an act of taking creation all the way back to its original form. God is just simply speeding up the process. He saw that every intention of every man's heart was bent towards evil, that left up to themselves, they would destroy the world themselves. And he sped up the process with the flood, and he takes it all the way back The waters covering all the earth. Man was already on a self-imposed path of destruction. So he takes it back. We have these waters. He gets into the ark with his family. All the animals, two by two. And then the floodwaters come up from the ground and the rain takes over the whole world. And here is the ark floating on these waters. These, remember before creation, these primordial waters, the waters of chaos, a pre-creative state, the flood has taken it just all the way back to that. And here is the ark, a new creation. Noah and his family saved. A new creation. The animals, two by two, representing the animals of the world. And here it is, this new creation on the ark. God is in the business of recreating his world when it goes 
way afar from what he has designed. This, this mini garden of the ark floating on the chaotic waters, just waiting for God to start over again. He gives humanity another chance. Noah is the new Adam, and God is recreating. Pastor Larry, uh, he translated verse uh, 11, chapter 11, verse 1 is this. Now, faith is manifest the reality of what we hope for, the compelling evidence about things that we cannot see. Noah couldn't see the judgment. But what he got as evidence for his faith is a new creation. And he was right in the midst of it. Unseen judgment. He responds in faith, righteous faith, and he builds an ark right on dry land for everybody to see. That had to be humiliating. That word from God had to bring so much humiliation upon Noah. You know, the, all these scholars are trying to figure out how long did it take for Noah to build the ark? And they're thinking like 55 to 75 years. 55 to 75 years of building this massive ark with all of his neighbors making fun of him with evil intention in their hearts. That's astounding to me. Was Noah only giving a message of condemnation to his fellow human beings? Isn't the ark a message of hope? Only a message of condemnation. When that's the case, we get off track. And we miss the recreation. We miss the mercy. We miss God's compassion for Noah and his family. If our primary message is one of condemnation, then I do not believe the unbelieving world will hear us. They will tune us out. Judgment is real. I spent a lot of time showing that to be true. But the greater truth is the compassion of God's own heart. Mercy triumphs condemnation. Always triumphs over condemnation. Always triumphs over judgment. So, the, wor- the, the church, evangelical church, the reformed church, Pentecostal, you, we have been so focused on the message of condemnation for so very long, and I do not believe that produces a healthy Christian message. It produces the wrong focus, and it leads people to be defensive. The, so go out. And give a message to your unbelieving friends and see where that gets you. They will just tune you out. No more relationship. We can't do that. So how do we live in this tension? We know there is a judgment yet to come, but we know God is full of compassion. What should our message be? What should our focus be? I think our focus should be on repentance. Let's take it all the way back to where Jesus started his ministry. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And you say, Pastor Tim, what's the difference between repentance and condemnation? They're both focusing on sin. They're both focusing on the negative. I believe that repentance pushes us towards the mercy of God. If you only make repentance about what I did wrong and how God's going to judge me, you're you're missing the best part of our message. We can no longer do that as a church. 
What's the difference? Well, if you're focused on condemnation, if we, let's, if we are focused on condemnation, we make God into some kind of ogre. Too often with this message, let's be honest about ourselves. If you're my age, maybe not the young people, I'll give, but I don't know. I know the human heart. But let's be honest. Don't we make ourselves judge and jury against the people of the world? Instead of saying, I'm right there with you. I deserved God's judgment. But he was merciful to me in Jesus Christ. And I invite you into his merciful heart. We cannot, we have to talk about sin. Because God came as a sacrifice for all of our sin if we receive him. But we cannot make ourselves judge. We must push, push into the mercy of God. The truth of the matter is God is the only one who can examine the human heart. Because he's the only one who's full of compassion and mercy. He is the one who gets to put his finger on the human heart and say, this is where your issue is, my son, my daughter. Repent and come to me and I will forgive you. And I will lead you in a different way and give you life eternal. We sang about it. If your heart is barren, if your heart is like a desert, I will give you waters of life. I am the river of life and I will flow into your heart and I will give new life. I will cause new life to spring up into your heart. That is the focus. That is the focus of the Christian message. And it says, Noah, in response, built an ark for the saving of his family. But who did the saving? Was it God or was it Noah? Noah was participating in it for 55 to 75 years, no doubt. But it was God. It was God saying Noah and his family. There was a clear difference between Noah and the rest of the world. The scriptures make that point. He was blameless in the sight of God. He wasn't without sin. We'll see in a second that that's not true. But he was not doing the things that the world was doing. He was different. And God saw that act of faith, and he rewarded him and saved his family. God's mercy upon Noah and his family and all the animals in the ark. God's mercy towards his creation. That's the beauty of this story. And it says he became an heir of righteousness. He received God's righteousness into his heart. It's a beautiful picture. Noah's act of building the ark is a sermon pointing to one greater than Noah. It's pointing to Christ, the one who creates. The one who creates the whole world. The one who recreates the world. And the one who builds a greater ark to save humanity. Jesus, superior to Noah. <clears throat> you know, Hebrews 11 makes everyone look good and righteous. But if you read the Old Testament, the Old Testament goes out of its way to show how, hot, how we are hot messes. Everyone in this Hebrews 11, almost everyone, we don't know about Enoch, but you examine that man's heart, I bet you he was a hot mess too. Every single one of these folks is a hot mess. Isn't it nice to know that Jesus loves hot messes like them and like us? It's comforting. 
because we have a God who is full of grace. Yes, he will judge the world, but he has come with kindness in his heart. So Noah, after he saves his family, participates in this great act. The scripture says, you know what it says? He planted a vineyard. He got drunk. And he was laying in his tent, naked and ashamed, and his son Ham saw him. Naked and ashamed. Does that sound like anything you know? It's a repeat of Adam and Eve. This is the new Adam. And not all the righteous acts he could do, doesn't matter how the ark he built, he could not break the cycle of sin and destruction and death, even in his own life. He got drunk. His, his son, Ham, saw him, embarrassed him, and that leads to a cursing upon Ham's son, Canaan, and the rest of human history flows out of that. This, this endless, endless cycle in human history. His righteousness simply wasn't enough. Jesus is the only example of perfect obedience. He is the only example we have of perfect righteousness. Amen? His righteousness is enough. He is the ultimate example of perfect righteousness amid chaos and evil that we see in our lives, in our own hearts, and in the world around us. Jesus is the new creation, the new Adam, but without sin. Out of his mercy, God creates in Jesus Christ a new humanity destined for a new creation, this new Garden of Eden in the final days. A new creation new heavens, and a new earth. Such a glorious picture. Instead of judging the world, Jesus comes and takes on our judgment. The wood of the cross becomes the building material of a new ark that God the Father will use to save the world from death and chaos and sin and destruction, all the things that we see in our own hearts and all the things that we see around us. The scripture says it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It is his mercy that draws us close. And the heart of the Father, we know from scripture, scripture is, he doesn't want anyone to perish. He will go out of his way to show you his mercy. Yes, he will show you his sin, your sin. But he will show you his mercy and forgiveness. It's not the threat of destruction that will lead us to God but his mercy demonstrated in the death, resurrection, ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? I lead Thursday morning prayer meeting. We've been doing it since uh, the pandemic started. We have prayer meetings, just so you know, at 7 o'clock Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday. I lead, the, I lead the one on Thursday. And this is what happens, truth be told. I roll out of bed. I mean, literally, roll out of bed. My hair is in shambles. I'm picking up whatever clothes I can find on the ground, on the floor. I get dressed, and I stumble online, and I lead the prayer meeting. <laughs> Truth be told, well, let me back up for a second. Let me set the record straight. There is not necessarily something more godly about being a morning person. I am not a morning person. <laughs> there... There's not something more godly about being a morning person. My wife's a morning person. She's a godly woman. But she's not more godly because she wakes up earlier than I. I do not like the morning. 
And unless God does a miraculous work in my heart, I will never like the morning. But I stumble out of bed and I lead that prayer meeting. Amy and I, we're, we're doing some premarital counseling right now, which we often do. And uh, we, we took a course. We wanted to kind of up our game a little bit. Feeling our premarital counseling was just getting a little bit stale. And so we, we did this test. We passed out this test. And we did our test for our own marriage. And we were reading the book, and we were asking questions. And one is about how you encourage one another as a married couple or as a premarried couple. And so I said to Amy, I said, what, what do I do that encourages you? And now, I thought it was going to be this grand example of, you know, this Noah-like example, uh, some heroic effort coming to her aid at her greatest time of need. And you know what she said? She said, you know what really encourages my soul? You faithfully leading prayer meeting on Thursday mornings. It makes me feel safe. That shocked me. But it's not all that surprising if you know Amy. She loves consistency. She loves waking up in the morning, you know, getting her coffee, going through her routine. That makes her feel safe. So me, grumbling heart, rolling out of bed, and, and I'm literally getting in front of the camera, and I'm trying to get my hair to kind of stay, stay in place. It's short now, so it'll stay in place for about three weeks, but... Most of the time it's long and I'm trying to get it like going and just like trying to blow, you know, the sleep out of my eyes. And she's encouraged by it. It's like this little arc that God has created for her in our marriage. It's like this little safe space. It's like this little garden of Eden. And I get to participate in it for my wife. How amazing is that? Now, if I were mentioned in Hebrews 11, it would go like this. Tim was a mighty prayer warrior. <laughs> Waking up early in the morning, shaking off sleep to lead his flock in prayer. So by faith, he became a great encouragement to his wife as he pointed her to Jesus. An amazing act of righteousness. Do you get the point? Our... Righteous acts, Romans says, they're not that all impressive. They're like filthy rags before God. Those righteous acts, when seen through the lens of Jesus' own righteousness, become amazing acts of faith. Noah was just a man, but he had the spirit behind him fueling his righteous faith. That is the truth. It's the truth for me. It's also the truth for you if you believe in Jesus Christ. We get to create, we get to go wherever we want, taking the Garden of Eden and creating these little arcs, these little Garden of Edens for other people. How are you going to do that this week? What ark is God asking you to build to participate with him in the salvation of the world? Let me ask it again. What ark is God asking you to build to participate with him in the salvation of the world? There is much evil in the world. We can see it all around us, and we see it within ourselves. It's everywhere. But God has placed you as a new creation amid this evil and chaos, a small garden of Eden for other people. That puts a whole new perspective on your week, doesn't it? What righteous act 
is God calling forth from you today? Let's ask him. Let's just take a quiet moment. I'll head towards the Lord's Supper, the table. But close your eyes. Let's just ask. Lord, we want to be like Noah. We want to create an ark to make somebody feel safe, to make somebody feel loved, to help. Saving against the judgment that is to come. You're the only righteous judge. You're the only one who can be just and merciful at the same time perfectly. Help us. Speak to us now. What righteous act are you calling forth from us today?